Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special podcast series hosted by the Christmas Journal. I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of the Journal. Uh, and in this mini series, we're talking about CRISPR functional genomics. It's sponsored by Horizon Discovery. The topic today is strategies for minimizing off target effects using CRISPR. And I'm delighted to be joined by Omar Abadaya and Jonathan Gutenberg of the McGovern Institute. We'll bring them on in just a second. The podcast is sponsored by Horizon Discovery, the leader in CRISPR functional genomics offering a large portfolio of CRISPR screening tools, reagents, and cell line generation. Horizon Inspired Cell Solutions. Our guests today are Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg, who have just recently, in the last few months, assumed a new independent laboratory uh, position at the McGovern Institute at MIT. Until recently, they were both very uh, successful and prolific members of Feng Zhang's laboratory at the Broad Institute. They've both worked on a variety of cutting-edge projects, including the development of Sherlock, which we'll hear about in a minute, uh, and they're also co-founders of Sherlock Biosciences. So, Omar and Jonathan, hello. Hi. Uh, hey, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. So we want to begin by talking about off-target effects. Um, later on, we're going to talk a little bit more about what your current interests are. But to kick off, we want to spend a few minutes to talk about off-target effects, initially with Cas9, but I'm guessing this may also apply to some of the other Cas nucleases that you've been uh, particularly interested in uh, over the recent years. So I guess in a sort of a nice, easy opening question, Let's ask, have we made progress over the last few years in reducing the risk of off-target effects when you set up CRISPR screens and CRISPR knockouts? Let's start there. Yeah. So this is Omar. And I think, you know, there's actually been a tremendous amount of progress in the field around off-targets. You know, as you may know, there's been concern since the beginning that, you know, while Cas9 can be precise, there can be reasons why it can bind in other places in the genome and cause nuclease events that lead to off-target, you know, insertions or deletions. Yeah. And so I think there are three principal ways people have actually been trying to engineer this problem away. One is through the protein itself, the Cas9. The second is through engineering of the guide RNA. And the third is through the actual mode of delivery and how you actually express the protein. And so the progress that's been made in terms of engineering the protein, you know, a lot of people have evolved the protein and mutagenized it in ways such that it um, might have maybe reduced catalytic activity or reduced ability in forming the R loop in such a way that it preferences cutting towards an actual fully complementary target site rather mm -hmm. than target sites that may have a mismatch or two. And so those approaches have worked well. There's a variant called Enhanced Specificity Cas9. There's um, other groups like Keith Jung have also made specificity versions of Cas9. Yeah. Um, and those yeah. work really well. The guide RNA approach is also really interesting. And so people have actually shown that if you shorten the guide, um, you make the target duplex sort of more sensitive to mismatches by just modulating the thermodynamic stability of binding. And so shorter guides actually tend to be more specific, and you can play around with the guide length. That sounds counterintuitive, that a shorter guide should give you better results, but it does. Yeah, yeah, it is counterintuitive, but yeah, the, I guess the thermodynamic energies sort of first principles don't lie there. Um, okay. And so that's something you can play around with. And then the, the third is actual delivery and how you express the protein, because it turns out the longer you express it, um, intuitively, you might expect the more chance it, Cas9 could find an off-target site and actually cut and cause an off-target. Mm -hmm. And so there are you know, ways to deliver Cas9, for example, in a virus where you get expression for years, and that mm -hmm. might not be as good. 
versus where you can deliver the protein and have it turn over in days or even uh, quicker than that, such that you limit expression and just get the specific target uh, edit that you want. And so these types of understandings and engineering approaches sort of led a long way into uh, sort of very specific approaches for genome editing with Cas9. And I'll probably I'll let maybe Jonathan comment yeah. on how maybe Cas12 and other approaches I've developed have actually gone around this problem too. Yeah, Please. I actually think that one of the most important things about the field of off-targets <laughs> is our capacity to measure them. Because if you think about it, it's not a trivial thing to say, hey, where in the genome are these potential off-targets happening if they're at the cut site, if they're at potential places that we would think, or across the genome. So if you, you know, think back to some of the first Cas9 profiling studies done in 2013, the technologies were basically, we were PCRing areas that we had the best prior knowledge of, which would be things that have similarity with the guide. And those studies were incredibly foundational and led to a lot of the understanding of how Cas9 actually chooses certain off-targets. But there's been a great metaphor used, which is that if we're looking under the lampposts, you know, we'll only find what's under there. So unbiased methods that have since been developed, like GuideSeq, for example, have allowed us to really search throughout the genome, um, but without having to necessarily do the extensive like whole genome sequencing that you might need to do, right. um, but instead actually just looking for off-target integration um, of different oligos. And right. There's continuing methods to develop that now there have been even more recent methods that actually use a pull down of DNA damage repair proteins that can isolate these off targets. So I think that all of this information has really been vital to understanding the effects of Cas9. Also, there's a big consideration, which is that even if you're getting a cut in the places you want, you may have an interesting repair mechanism there because repair could potentially cause large deletions, it could cause a small indel inactivating a gene, a knockout which you want desired, mm -hmm. or it could cause an indel that doesn't inactivate the gene um, and uses micromology to restore a functional product. And especially in the case of screening, that is a large issue because certain guides, even if you think you're knocking out the protein, you're not. So these considerations are all being buttressed by a lot of data that we're getting from these new methods and informed by a lot of the techniques that Omar talked about. And in the context of all of these, Cas9 is not the only enzyme out there. So yep. Cas12, um, which is a whole set of different enzymes, Cas12A, Cas12B, you know, there's a whole alphabet of those. Those are an entirely different system of CRISPR nucleases um, that Omar and I were part of kind of the investigation and discovery and characterization of those during our graduate work. Yep. And the Cas12 enzymes, the most widely used is Cas12A, um, have very different properties in Cas9 in a lot of ways. One most important one is that Cas12A has been demonstrated to have a higher natural specificity than the Cas9 that is most commonly used as Streptococcus pyogenes. Mm. So when you're kind of diving into this toolbox of different scissors, um, I think there's a lot of considerations you need to take, of course, you know, where you can target. And you probably talked about, you know, how the PAM affects all of this in yeah. uh, other podcasts. Um, yeah. But also these different engineered, you know, ESP Cas9, Cas9 HF, or natural variants, uh, Cas12A, of the broader CRISPR nucleases uh, really have a lot of different effects on how off-targets will arrive. And I think the field will keep evolving. 
All right, we're going to come back to CAS 12 uh, in a second. Uh, but Omar, uh, just to finish off on this off-target uh, issue for now, um, are there any tips or best practices that you would give researchers, perhaps because, as you know, you've helped trigger so many new investigators are coming to the crystal field all the time. So if they really are worried and trying to minimize off-target effects, what, what are some of the key principles that you think people need to be wary of uh, as they launch into these experiments? Yeah, I think if you sort of, you know, if you really care about specificity, the easiest thing you can do is to use uh, guide design tools that are really optimized for this problem. So, uh-huh. you know, when we're designing a new experiment, uh, we actually use Benchling, which is a molecular biology sort of cloud software tool set that's really great and it's free for academics and I think companies have to pay a little bit but um, what's really great is you can like import your DNA sequence you can then highlight regions you want to target with CRISPR and it has the tool that was actually developed in Feng Zheng's lab for predicting off targets and you can really easily see which guides score the best which ones don't um, and design your experiment really easily and then beyond that you know dozens of other groups have built on those types of algorithms for off target prediction and there's even now like deep learning tools from like Microsoft Research that can really tell you what guides are really specific. And I think as part of that, when you are designing guides, you probably want to screen multiple guides. Um, So you want to try maybe two or more, um, because even though the guide design tools are pretty uh, good, um, in practice, there tends to be some variance. And so you want to definitely test the panel um, out. And then beyond that, um, you know, most people use sort of garden variety SPCAS9 for a lot of their experiments because they don't care about off targets. But if you really do care, um, it's good to stay on top of the sort of variant literature where people have engineered new types of Cas9. So I mentioned enhanced specificity Cas9, which is really good for state-of-the-art SP Cas9. You, of course, can also use Cas12, which is naturally more specific. There have been uh, papers, I believe, where you can actually modify the guides. So if you're synthesizing the guide as RNA, I, th- I believe um, there are modifications um, that you can make to enhance sort of uh, the recognition of the target versus off-target as well as other sort of guide engineering principles like shortening the guide that you can try as well. But I would say by far the easiest thing to do is use a guide design tool that predicts off targets. and design Okay, that's, that's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, you introduced us a minute ago to CAS-12 and CAS-12A, uh, and this has obviously become a major uh, area of interest to your lab. Tell us a little bit more about the biology of these nucleases and how do they differ from CAS-9 and why have they become so interesting? Well, that's a really great area to discuss. And I think they're really interesting for two reasons. Um, One that I'll touch on briefly because some viewers uh, may not nerd out about it as much as us, but microbiologically, you know, it's really cool that these adaptive immune systems evolved in so many different ways. But beyond that, you know, having this wide array of different tools in this toolbox allows us to do so many different things. And we've seen applications from both CAS-12 and CAS-13 that we couldn't have used CAS-9 to do. So it's really amazing. But I'll kind of take us back to the very beginning, which is uh, around when CAS-9 was becoming very popular, um, it was the only known CRISPR enzyme that could do both recognition of its nucleic acid as well as cutting all within one enzyme. It's called a single effector system. And back then, we, in Fung's lab, began this exploration into new CRISPR diversity, along with Eugene Kunin and, and Sergei Schmacka from his group. And we computationally identified and biochemically and also microbiologically characterized a whole swath of different Cas12 and Cas13 enzymes. And these enzymes really expanded the CRISPR diversity because it was now Cas12 
It was this entirely different enzyme that was able to do targeting, binding of DNA via an RNA programming and then cutting. And then Cas13, it's an RNA-targeting programmed enzyme. So what it allows us to do is you can imagine all these things we do with Cas9 and Cas12, where inside of cells, we can target DNA and cut and recruit factors. Cas13 allows us to do that, but on RNA. So it opens up an entire toolbox of you know applications inside of cells on RNA. Mm-hmm. So it was really exciting for us to see that and explore these different aspects. You know, they differ in, in very many ways from Cas9. Just a couple bullet points on Cas12. It has a different PAM, so it targets a T-rich PAM instead of a G-rich PAM, uh, yeah. which most Cas9s target. It actually processes its own pre-CRISPR RNA naturally. And what that means is that it makes multiplexing much easier. And there have now been a couple papers, I think most recently um, for Randall Platt's lab at ETH Zurich, where you can actually have a large pre-CRISPR array that you all have compacted together, and it can be processed inside of a mammalian cell to allow for really rapid multiplexing. And we uh, also demonstrated that in Feng Zhang's lab along with Barry yeah. Leitchev. So, and ICAS-12, as Omar and I both mentioned, also has better natural specificity. So it's just really fascinating to watch uh, this field evolve. And there's so many different CAS-12 subtypes now. I think uh, they're probably up to K. Uh, There's a CAS-12 most recently that was discovered to actually target a transposase, some amazing work out of Funk's lab. So it's really been cool to explore that. And there's so many applications there. So CAS-13 itself, which Omar and I also focused on, the applications there for RNA knockdown inside of cells, for imaging of RNA inside of cells, for editing RNA inside of cells, and this is something we've done a lot of work on, where we can actually recruit an RNA editing enzyme like ADAR to a RNA transcript and change the RNA information. Now, when we're talking about off-targets, those don't have permanent off-targets, unlike DNA editing. So it allows us to have a potentially much less problematic system if you're really, really worried about off-targets. And then yes, about Sherlock, which you hinted at, both CAS-12 and CAS-13 have this property that uh, was first discovered in CAS-13 when we initially characterized it called uh, collateral activity or transcleavage, which is where these enzymes, when they bind to their target that's been programmed by their guide RNA, um, they become activated and will cleave their targeted nucleic acid, RNA in the case of Cas13, DNA in the case of Cas12, but they also will cleave other nucleic acids in solution. And this happens in test tubes with both Cas12 and Cas13. In Cas13, it actually also happens in the native bacteria, which is a really cool kind of uh, abortive uh, suicide approach that in these native bacteria, Luciano Marfini has um, a great recent paper on this. Uh, it actually kind of sacrifices that host to stop the phage from spreading. Right, um, right. And this activity is an enzymatic amplification of the presence of nucleic acid. So it allows us to detect the presence of nucleic acid. And in our characterization of Cas13, we could incubate it with a certain target and then read out the presence of the target by cleavage of a, a different target RNA. So if you use a molecule with a quencher on one end and a reporter on the other end, for example, you can actually detect very specifically and very sensitively the presence of a nucleic acid using these different enzymes. And that's the basis of our Sherlock technology. Well, let's uh, have Omar pick up the story. So, Omar, where has Sherlock, this new diagnostic technology that you've developed, where is that really showing promise? Because it's notable you, you wasted little time in building a company around it. 
Yeah. So I think when trying to build a, a Sherlock application where you really want to think about are places that really utilize the key features of the platform. So that's being sort of really high sensitivity down to a single molecule, um, really good specificity. So if you know you need to detect a single mismatch, we also can uh, really fit well in applications that uh, require low cost, are portable, and sort of easy to use. So if you don't have kind of a skilled worker. And mm -hmm. so a lot of places where um, you can start to think about that being applicable are, for example, hospitals, you know, that are not necessarily in big cities with all the fancy sort of lab testing equipment. So if you want to start thinking about actual screening viruses or bugs like tick-borne diseases or even like the flu, usually, you know, it, it takes a while for sort of local clinics to send out um, samples and get a response. And a lot of times they'll tell you it's not bacterial, it's just viral. And so having tests where you can actually bring that closer to people and the patients and actually have them done in less than an hour such that you can get real-time information can be really, uh, really powerful. Um, and so we're thinking about applications where that can be uh, pretty useful. Is it all about infectious disease and viral infections like Zika? Is that the main area or is the application broader than that? I would say um, we're thinking, you know, more broadly than that as well. Yeah. Um, even, you know, in some of our own work, we've been thinking about, uh, sort of, for example, cancers. You know, cancer, mm -hmm. you might not uh, expect it to be something that can fit the parameters I was just talking about because you might not yeah. need an answer in half an hour, right? You can wait, you know, a week, for example, for an answer and still be able to treat the patient or you might be able to want to screen like hundreds of mutations. But it turns out there are certain cancers like blood cancers where the cells can be growing uncontrollably, almost like a bacteria growing in the blood and patients can be at risk of death within a couple of days. And so having an answer actually becomes much uh, more necessary and you can't send out a test and wait a week. And so having a test where it can be done in any hospital by any sort of um, unskilled technician um, yeah. becomes actually really uh, desirable. Um, so that's one area. We've also been thinking beyond healthcare. Um, and so, you know, we had uh, the paper in the CRISPR journal, right, looking yeah. at agricultural applications. And we're yeah. very excited about that, you know, being able not only to help the engineering of plants, for example, so help breeders actually rapidly uh, test for different traits they may want in their plants. But also you can think about, you know, there's other things you might want to look for in the field, for example, pesticide resistance um, right. or like, you know, weeds, for example, might um, grow resistance to common pesticides and be able to track that using portable genetic tests mm. can be quite useful or even viral outbreaks in fields. Farmers will want tests that can actually sense, you know, is there something wrong with my field, which parts of the fields are affected. Yeah. So thinking about viral testing for plants as well. Yeah. And Jonathan, you've also been collaborating with Pardis Sabeti, I believe, at the Broad to uh, really take uh, Sherlock really out into the field, into Africa and places. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, our collaboration with Pardis has been incredibly fruitful, and it's been mm. amazing working with her and uh, some of the members from Matt Lab, uh, mm. most notably uh, Cameron Mirvold and Catherine Fugge. And they've uh, really taken the portability of Sherlock especially uh, to the next level. So uh, we recently published together a paper on allowing Sherlock to be directly performed from samples such as urine or saliva and be able to actually use patient samples with these different flaviviruses and detect the presence or absence of them. And now they're taking this capability, which you know makes it incredibly field portable. And so you can take a sample, pre-treat it, and then read it out with a lateral flow strip test. Um, yeah. And they're taking that to multiple different locations yeah. because Pardis, you know, she is so adamant about not only developing these things in her lab, but also taking them out for these applications in the field. And it's been very cool to see something that we kind of imagined in 
lab, you know, as a result of this really neat enzyme activity become a reality. And so it's really cool that Pardis has been able to, you know, really help with that. And Pardis is also working a lot with other members of the Broad Infectious Disease Program for actually scaling the Sherlock technology and the casertine technology up to uh, additional applications. Well, uh, I'll put the last question to both of you. Omar, I'll start with you. Uh, you've uh, recently set up your new uh, lab at the McGovern Institute just across the road from the Broad, so you didn't have to <laughs> back up and move too far, uh, which is a smart move, I guess. Um, I presume you're still working on CRISPR, but in closing, what are the major research directions, and are you kind of branching out into any uh, new terrain? Yeah, so I mean, I think what I've learned from my previous research is how uh, diverse uh, nature can be and how much there is that we can learn in terms of new functionalities and what we can apply for biotechnology. And so I think a general theme is sort of mining uh, microbial diversity for uh, new enzymes and tools. And, you know, one thing I'm pretty excited about is I'm motivated by a problem we've had in our previous research where a lot of the tools we've built, like RNA editing tools, DNA editing tools, are too large for current uh, viral vector delivery systems. And so, um, you know, applying some of our microbial uh, mining expertise to instead viruses and trying to understand the diversity of viruses and engineer ones that could be useful for gene delivery and specifically for really large payloads, um, I think is one exciting direction that I'm really excited to see um, through and to see how it can be used for gene therapy in the future. Great. Joff, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I mean, it's just really fun being able to kind of dig into this natural diversity and see what we can find. And uh, one of the things we're really interested in is just compiling a ton of different data sources and kind of different environmental samples even and being able to use the computational and biochemical and kind of sequencing-based technologies that we really got trained on during our PhDs to see what we can find, be that CRISPR or other things. And I think that it's just a really exciting time to be in the field of biodiscovery and, of course, in CRISPR because we're really kind of, you know, still digging into the unknown here and there's going to be so much more to find. So it's very exciting. And, you know, if anyone listening to this podcast wants to provide samples or data, we're happy to dive into it <laughs> um, because, you know, who knows what's out there? Excellent. Well, listen, it's been a fascinating conversation and uh, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. So uh, my thanks to Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg of now uh, newly minted fellows at the McGovern Institute uh, at MIT. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more uh, from their uh, research uh, um, endeavors uh, in the uh, months and years to come. Uh, my thanks to Horizon Discovery for putting this uh, podcast mini-series together, uh, and most of all, uh, to you for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We'll have more uh, podcasts in this mini-series coming up uh, your way very soon. But for now, for everyone here at uh, the Crystal Journal, I'm Kevin Davis. Thanks for joining us, and goodbye for now.